Hello, and welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Sharon Shu, And I'm Karis Ellison. Today we're going to have a special episode for you. Uh, we're not going to be talking about one of the novels, but we have a, an episode with a guest on a special subject. Before we get into that, though, uh, the world has changed a lot, Sharon, <laughs> since the last time you and I spoke, because we recorded, you know, several episodes in advance. And uh, since that time, the world has turned upside down. It really, yeah, I, I mean, it, it seems both like a million years ago that we recorded those Strong Poison <laughs> episodes and also the blink of an eye. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people say that it felt like March went on forever. And now April is just vanishing like water down a drain. Yeah. And that feels very accurate. I have a coworker who keeps saying time is just a flat circle now, and <laughs> I feel like that is very apt. So yes, we are we are both sheltering in place. Yes, and we hope many of our listeners are. And if you're not, if you like, if you're an essential worker, if you are having to, you know, if you aren't able to stay at home, we hope that you're staying very safe. Yeah, and we're thinking of you. We really are. Yeah, and you know, I I think there's always this this feeling when world events like this happen of what things feel frivolous and what things feel really necessary. Mm -hmm. And, and in many ways, a, a podcast does feel like a frivolity. But we, we hope that if you're a listener of our show, that these episodes about cozy mysteries can can provide a bit of a, a solace or an escape right now. Yeah. And whenever there's some world event, there's always that feeling of guilt, you know, like, what can I do? And it feels very strange that the best thing for us to do is stay home, don't do anything. Yeah. I've said this a couple times to people, but social distancing really kind of goes against every instinct I have in a crisis. I, I mm -hmm. tend to be a, you know, like gather everybody for dinner, mobilize the community type of personality in crisis. And so it's been really strange to just kind of be hunkering down at home with my yeah. spouse and, you know, still, I'm, I'm still working remotely, uh, pretty much full time. So I'm, I'm thankful for the job. But yeah, it just it's, it's been very isolating. Um, yeah, so I'm glad to hear your voice, Karis. I am glad to hear your voice as well. Yeah. How are how are things affecting you? Like, are you are you working still? I am working a little bit. As you and our listeners know, I work in a, a public library and our library is closed for the safety of our community. And we don't know when we'll reopen to patrons, but the library staff, like in order to keep everyone on the payroll, because, you know, people, <laughs> people need to be paid in order to get by. Yeah. Um, the, so the staff is going in and working on on projects. Some people have been inventorying and moving shelves and things like that. I personally have been working on some big displays that go with our summer theme and hopefully we'll be able to reopen it at some point in the summer so that they can be used. But we're, you know, like we're being careful to kind of stay apart and have space in between people and only going in three days a week. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm still working. Uh, but as you know, Sharon, our listeners don't know, but I live with my parents who are mm -hmm. both uh, vulnerable. They're both immunocompromised. So we're being very careful. And my sister who also lives at home, the two of us have been, <laughs> we've been like aggressively guarding our parents. Oh, God. I'm, glad. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um. And our, our parents, they have started to get a little fractious and rebellious. 
Oh, how the tables have turned. <laughs> I I know, I do feel like we're all, all of us millennials are telling our boomer parents like, no, you really do have to stay at home. Yeah. Yeah. My I think my parents, because, you know, we still have family ties in Asia, mm-hmm. um, in both China and Taiwan. I, I think in some ways they were maybe mentally a little bit more prepared yeah. uh, than many other people's parents. Um <laughs> They, in fact, you know, started sheltering in place even before mm. uh, there were any, you know, sort of county or state mandates. You know, they, my parents live in Georgia, but they, my mom was texting me even before the San Francisco Bay Area shelter in place came down to like start working from home and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's also very cute because she also texted me like, did you know that you can have groceries delivered <laughs> by these services? And I was like, oh, welcome to the 21st century, mom. Oh, your mom is so precious. I love her. She is precious. But yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear that your family is safe and healthy. And I, I hope your parents don't try to sneak out on you. No, we have blocked their cars in and my sister <laughs> took away their car keys. Oh, my God. And like, yeah, and like we're, we're careful to park behind them in the driveway. So. And mostly it's kind of like we have a good laugh about it, about how we're their their jailers, but also like there's there is a part of it that's like this no, this is very serious. Like we really mean it. Yeah. And we bring the groceries and we're just like, you don't touch the groceries. We wipe down the groceries and put them away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we yeah. wipe down the kitchen. You <laughs> You don't so get really, to do they this. Should be, they should be enjoying that. <laughs> It is, except the funny thing is, is that my mom, she was trying to convince me that she needs to go to the grocery store because she's very much like an instinctive shopper. Like she makes a list, but then she really supplements the list by seeing things and remembering, oh, I'm going to make that or, you know. Right. And so she just like, she just really wants to do that. And I'm like, you, you may not. You could try a video call, I guess, while you're in the store. Yes. With her, but that sounds like a nightmare. And I'm sure she would do the like, no, but I need to, to feel the produce. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you're working for, like you're working full time from home. Is your spouse working? Yes. So you're you're both full time from home. We are both full time. If anything, our industries have both picked up a little bit. Mm. So my husband works as a tech recruiter, and his company, fortunately, like the sort of sphere that they're in, isn't really being that affected with all the closures. Mm. If anything, hiring's kind of picking up a bit. So he's been really busy. And then I work in a job that's like publishing adjacent. So that has also felt a little bit like running a million miles an hour in place um, yeah because so many you know and and you know this like working in libraries so many tours have been canceled and publication dates are being moved around and so forth Um, yeah yeah so like publishing is in an uproar it is yeah I mean yeah it's one of those weird things where like publishing as an industry tends to be you know, pretty conservative, pretty slow moving. Mm-hmm. I like one of my coworkers, the the one who says time is a flat circle. <laughs> no, her phrase is also, you know, there is no breaking news in publishing. Usually there are no fires. Yeah. But everything's been on fire for the last month. Oh, goodness. Yeah. I don't even know any of your coworkers, but I have a favorite of your coworkers. Is that weird? <laughs> she's secretly my favorite too, but she's the only one. <laughs> oh it's kind of like i have a favorite sibling and it's the one who listens to the podcast regularly hello cara's (laughs) sibling (laughs) don't tell the other siblings
you know, one of the things that's kind of come out of this is it's reminding people that we really do need the arts. Yes. Because they're what make us, it's part of what makes us human and it makes us not crazy. Yeah. I um, kind of had the strange experience of reading Station Eleven right before things got really, really intense. Oh. You know, there like there are two readers in the world, right? There are two types of people in the world. Mm-hmm. And I am apparently the one that's like, let's read more pandemic books. Um, <laughs> Sharon, don't read. Don't read Doomsday Book. Oh, I, I will not make that mistake again. <laughs> I read Doomsday Book many years ago, you know, when the world was happy and cheerful yeah. and was like horribly depressed afterward. Yes. So public service announcement, don't read Doomsday Book, probably don't read Station Eleven right now. (laughs) But you know, the phrase that the traveling actor troupe uses in that post-apocalyptic landscape is, you know, and it comes from Star Trek, right? Like, like survival itself is insufficient. You need Mm. art, you need creativity, you need music and drama and and all these different things, like you were saying, to to remind us of, I think, not just better times, but yeah, like, I think what the human spirit can accomplish. Yeah. As you know, one of, other than Dorothy L. Sayers, one of my other favorite writers is Terry Pratchett. And I am literally always rereading the Discworld novels because I listen to the audiobooks when I go to sleep. And in Hogfather, which is kind of his a Christmas adjacent book, there's a part where a character who's the personification of death, like it's death the person as opposed to death the process. Mm-hmm. is talking about how humans need things, you know, like hope and truth. And they they need them to be the place where the fallen angel meets the rising ape. Mm. Which I know it's so good. And I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot. Probably especially now. Yes. Yeah. Ah, well, we'll link up all those reading recommendations and reading anti-recommendations <laughs> yes which is oh, i like i feel bad being like don't read connie willis because like you should read connie willis but just maybe right now read to say nothing of the dog yeah and yeah. not doomsday book which it's a tremendous book but it is yeah the premise is it's it's about time traveling historians one of whom goes back to the time of the black death and gets trapped there and is like oh all of our estimates about how many people died in the black death were horribly wrong because turns out like entire villages died and then were just wiped off the historical record right yeah yeah Um, yeah rocks fall everybody dies yeah it's really terrible it's a very it's it's a powerful book but it's very rough and yes my Official recommendation is to say nothing of the dog, which is Dorothy L. Sayers adjacent. Yes, I would. I add my recommendation to yours. <laughs> All right. But speaking so, of Sayers adjacent. Yes. Um, so I actually have not heard the episode that our listeners are about to hear. I'm going to be hearing it with them for the first time because I had computer troubles and wasn't able to join you. So why don't you tell me and our listeners about our guest and the subject for this special episode? Yes. So the subject for this special episode is glands. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As we have mentioned several times, we know nothing about the history of neuroscience, particularly how it would have been perceived in the popular imagination and how Sayers was interacting with different concepts of morality and biochemistry and so forth, particularly in whose body and in unnatural death. Um, So in this episode, I spoke with our listener, Gabrielle Farmer, listener and friend of the pod now. Um, (laughs) 
because she knows way more about all of this stuff, i.e. anything, um, than, <laughs> than we did. And yeah, we had a really wonderful conversation where she told me lots about how psychology as a as a discipline was intersecting with more of the, the bodily sciences at the time, mm-hmm. right? And how people were starting to understand more about the nervous system and brain chemistry and how all of those things affect behavior. We talk about how these concepts come up in the book and also talked a lot about shell shock and and mm. PTSD and how the evolving understanding of what shell shock was really both came from scientific discovery, but also kind of what what was convenient for the military mm. to admit or not admit, um, mm. kind of like the PR aspect of it. So, so yeah, I'm excited for you to listen to it, Karin. I'm so excited to hear it. I was very sad to miss recording because I... I'm so interested in learning more about this topic. Like I think as I said in one of our previous episodes where the subject was coming up, I was just like, I want to know more, but I don't even know enough to know what to search for. Yeah, it's just really nice to talk with someone who has such a command of the subject matter that, you know, even even when you're feeling like I don't know what questions to ask because mm-hmm. I don't know enough about my own ignorance to even <laughs> know how to address it, like when they can lead you through all of that. So yes, I am yeah. looking forward to it. And thank you so much to Gabrielle for reaching out to us via email and agreeing to be on the podcast. And we hope that all of you will enjoy it. I know that I am about to. So today we have Gabrielle Farmer with us to talk about glands. <laughs> and we're so pleased. Gabrielle, thank you so much for speaking with us. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to be so knowledgeable about neuroscience? Yes. So thank you so much for having me on your wonderful show. So I have a bachelor degree in neuroscience. I attended George Mason University and hold the degree from them. And I also had become familiar with the Whimsy series probably in high school. I think I started with Strong Poison and then read the books completely out of order. But I, through being interested in the other sorts of detective mysteries of that time period, have become very familiar with not only neuroscience as it is taught in the current sense, but also how it is written about in the contemporary literature to Sayers, and particularly in mystery and detective fiction. So when you said something in the Bologna Club about wanting to talk about Dr. Penberthy and Dr. Freak, I got very excited. Well, we're so glad that you reached out to us. And yeah, you, you sent Karis and myself a, a very detailed email all about kind of the, the contemporary attitudes about, you know, kind of that interaction between brain chemistry and behavior. So I'd love for you to take our listeners through some of that, maybe what was going on in the early 20th century um, with the science at large and kind of would the ideas that Freak and Pemberthy were bringing forward would those have been mainstream or kind of considered a little bit more niche? Yeah. So I think that Whose Body was actually one of the 
It may have actually been the last of the whimsy books I tracked down to read, and it was probably one of the most recent ones. And so I was really fascinated when I got to it, because this book was published in 1923, to see a lot of things in it that I thought were telling of Sayers paying a lot of attention to what was known about how the brain worked at this time. Because in the 20s, of course, psychology had kind of become a respectable individual science in the later part of the Victorian era, particularly the 1880s, 1890s, we see it kind of differentiating into not just a few people talking about it in a philosophical sense, but really becoming an individual science. Mm, Like its own discipline. Yes. And that's where we start to see the first psychological professional organizations being established and some things like that. So during those decades and the Edwardian period leading up to the First World War, we get these what I think of as kind of the most basic discoveries about the structure of the brain and the nervous system. And we get the early identifications of some of the mental disorders and mental illnesses that we'd be familiar with in kind of an amusing order. Some of the ones that were not discovered, but named early on are ones that we think of as very common and other ones were extremely rare. But in terms of how they became part of the the common consciousness, the kind of public interest, of course, it comes a little bit later. And particularly, I think it's it's worthwhile to know that in 1906, a man named Santiago Ramón y Cajal won the Nobel Prize for having discovered that the nervous system throughout the body is made of separate cells and not one continuous cord, like the veins are a continuous vessel. But so just that very basic idea of of it being separate cells would have kind of been in the news less than 20 years before Whose Body was published. And, And in that those decades in between, we get the term mental illness named for the first time, the idea that the brain has lobes that have different functions so that you have different kinds of information being processed in different parts of the brain was brand new. So in particular, there's a section in Whose Body where Peter is looking in Who's Who at Dr. Freak's publications. And I was looking at this last night and kind of very charmed by this because he has quite a lot of publications ranging from 1892 to 1920 that are just, you know, fictionalized titles that Sayers came up with. So it starts with the very first one is some notes on the pathological aspects of genius, which is so funny in context with both himself and Peter. Yeah. Would people have understood that term pathological in the same way that we do now? Yes, because at that point it was already being used in that sense of when we say pathological, we mean we are treating it as a medical concern. We're right. treating it as something that we can identify as possibly a problem, something we can treat. 
And then there it goes on through some other very, very realistic kinds of issues that he was looking at. Infant paralysis, disturbances of the nervous system, those diseases, um, again and again, and I see the words insanity and lunacy, particularly criminal lunacy. There's one that has to do with the application of psychotherapy to the treatment of shell shock in 1917. Very relevant. Yeah. And then there's one that where he's doing an answer to Professor Freud. So we get the sense that he is a confident and prominent enough medical gentleman that he feels like he can essentially give a professional call out to the most famous psychologist. Yeah, even the, let's see, the 1910 publication, The Modern Developments in Psychotherapy, colon, a criticism. Yes. <laughs> I always chuckle at that because I'm like, ah, oh, academia. <laughs> like, yes. Colon, a criticism is, you know, a, a, a subfield of itself. <laughs> you, you know that you've stumbled on like some academic beef when you find a series of articles that start out a response to. Exactly. <laughs> but, and then the most recent publication in Dr. Freak's um, lineup here is Structural Modifications Accompanying the More Important Neuroses. And that's a really exciting one to see for me because that puts him on the cutting edge. Hmm. Sayers has positioned him as somebody who is not only following the up-to-the-minute interests in within the field, but pushing them. And that's something that he and Peter talk about repeatedly in this book is the idea of your experiences changing your physical reality in your, your brain. And uh, he talks about that when he is talking to Peter about stress. And he, he says something about, you know quite well that the strain you put on your nerves during the war has left its mark on you. Sensations received by your nerve endings sent messages to your brain and produced minute physical changes there, changes we are only beginning to be able to detect, even with our most delicate instruments. These changes in their turn set up sensations, or I should say more accurately, that sensations are the names we give to these changes of tissue when we perceive them. We call them horror, fear, sense of responsibility, and so on. And that is very accurate. It's, it's still pretty much how I would explain that to somebody who was, was talking to me about trauma on a physical level. This idea of what we call neuroplasticity these days is of your brain being molded by what you have lived through and what you think about frequently. And, and so you get your cells more specialized to have thoughts easily that are the things that you pursue thinking about frequently. Hmm. It's related to this idea of if you don't use it, you lose it. And so it, your, your brain will further develop the cells that have to do with what you use, and it will prune the ones you don't. And the fact that as early as 1923, this was something that was coming up in, you know, popular genre fiction really surprised me because I didn't realize that... It was in the popular consciousness that early. I would have guessed it was a little later. And that may just be that I have not read enough of the more serious literary kind of fiction of the time period, and, and maybe other authors were doing this kind of thing. But it, it reinforced to me that, that Sayers is, was really running with an intellectual professional crowd and had sought out 
really carefully information to try to make Dr. Freak sound reasonable and realistic and correct. And authoritative. Yes. And of course, Dr. Penworthy in The Unpleasantness at the Bologna Club is talking about glands. So he's more interested in kind of the chemical, hormonal aspect of this. And I'm a little bit less familiar with how the glands were perceived at this time, because I'm a little bit more familiar just in my own studies with how those chemicals interact with thoughts and behaviors than with the gl- how the glands themselves work. But again, I think that the Dr. Penberthy sounded like he was in tune with, with Sayers trying to be careful and correct and trendy, because I do think that the 20s and the early 30s was a time when her readers were very aware of and interested in psychology. And I think that y'all talked about Dr. Freud, of course, in previous episodes, and how prominent he was and some of his contemporaries like Carl Jung. And it's interesting to me that she didn't lean completely into the psychoanalysis side mm. of it so much as the the neuroscience element, the physiological component. And particularly in, in regards to, I'm thinking about Christie's detective, Hercule Poirot, who was a contemporary of Lord Peter's, and he would like to talk about the little gray cells and, <laughs> and kind of applying psychology to to how to the idea of human nature and and his, his detection but but Sayers took this different tactic of, of not having Peter Psycho analyze people as much as having these two villains talking about how the psychology goes with physical changes yeah it's very fascinating to both Karis and myself, that on the one hand, she has, she's, she's very meticulous, as you say, about making sure that the science is pretty airtight. Um, we know from her letters that she had correspondence with, you know, medical men and with researchers and so forth to make sure that she got those details correct. And that she's dealing with very, very cutting edge concepts, but making the the mouthpieces of those cutting edge concepts, both the the villainous characters, the murderers in both cases. And I wonder if that has anything to do with kind of Sayers, the the budding theologian, feeling potentially a little uncomfortable with, you know, having, I don't know if in the public imagination, people were starting to be like, oh, there's no such thing as morality. You know, I mean, like the, the part where Freak says, the knowledge of good and evil is a phenomenon of the mind, and it can be removed or excised, is that the point at which other people around Sayers, uh, the the common public would have been like, oh, that's too far? Or is Sayers being a little bit more conservative than than what people around her would have thought? No, I actually think she is very much reflecting these conversations that people would have been having about it. And some of the anxieties that were present even within the field. After we had been emailing each other, I looked up some more things about psychology and religion during this time period as they were interacting with each other, because that was something I knew less about. And one of the things I thought that was really interesting uh, was this 
article I found also published in 1923 in the Journal of Religion by a man named George Malcolm Stratton, and it was called Where Has Psychology Left Religion? So some of the things that this talked about was whether psychology permits the affirmation of mind, whether Freudianism is a safe guide, is mental activity mechanistic? I'll explain some of these in a second. And mostly this gentleman was very positive as, oh, we can use psychology as a a tool to reinforce and and amplify our work as Mm. people in the church and as people of faith. And some of these these anxieties that he was addressing, the one about whether mental activity is mechanistic, has to do with now that we have identified how the brain interacts with, with itself and our thoughts on a chemical level, on an electrical level, does that mean the brain is a machine? And if the brain is a machine, where does that leave our understanding of the soul? And I'm, I might be overstating this a little bit, but it seems to me that, you know, in kind of the early modern period and before, we get people talking about, you know, of course, the word mind was a, a word, but there's the body and there's the soul. Mm-hmm. And then kind of as psychology had become more of a present concept, we get the body and the mind and the soul as a group of three that overlap. And so there was this, this conflict between the brain as a physical object, the mind being the contents of our thoughts, and the soul. And the religious kind of conflict of, you know, how how much information would disprove in people's minds the idea that the soul even exists. And this gentleman, Mr. Stratton or Malcolm Stratton, was very much seeming to come down on the favor of just because we know how it works does not mean that it discounts the idea of a soul because our thoughts happen in tandem with the physical changes. And the other kinds of things, there were two elements that he seemed particularly wary of with psychological research. One is the Freudian obsession with sex. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine why a church man might have been uncomfortable with that. (laughs) No, at this point, he says something kind of funny about like, oh, but the subconscious is uh, not something we really want to think about, is it? Because it's about, it's got so much sex. (laughs) And I can't find the exact bit, but he kind of doesn't answer that. Mm-hmm. But the, the the other part that I thought was actually really funny was that he was very suspicious of people who were doing animal behavior studies. Hmm. And I had to think a little bit about why that was. I don't know whether this is or was universally a doctrine across all denominations. But I do know that within some Christian schools of thought, there is this idea that animals do not have souls. And so from Stratton's perspective, if they do not have souls, they don't really have thoughts in the same way that we kind of narrate our our lives to ourselves and have Mm -hmm emotional reactions in the same way. They're, you know, they're just kind of having physical things going on. And so he thought that this interest in animal behavior was a little worrying because he was concerned that if we got too interested in how animals behaved and how to extrapolate that onto humans, 
we would then kind of reverse engineer that into saying, well, humans think like animals. Mm -hmm. Therefore, Therefore. Therefore, they don't have the kind of individual thought and morality and spirituality that we have historically assigned to Mm. the human domain. So it's like the anti-Descartes, the I think, therefore, I am not. (laughs) I literally have the page open and he's talking about Descartes. (laughs) Well, me and Mr. Stratton (laughs) separated by a century and yet on the same page. (laughs) That's delightful. And he's talking about having to forgo in the study of rats and cats, the advantages of self-observation and verbal self-report they would have the entire study of human conscious life make a like renunciation. It is an amusing and in the end harmless extravagance. (laughs) (laughs) That's adorable. And and I, as a a modern person who, who who studied animal behavior in the course of my degree, thought this was a little little harsh on <laughs> on the animal behaviorists. There's a lot that we can can say about animals because they have the same kind of genes and structures that we do are going to respond to a lot of things in the same way that we do. And I think that animal behaviorists are very careful to not anthropomorphize and to make sure that they have good what's called face validity, which is testing for what you actually think you're testing for. So, so making sure that um, they, they can't just say, oh, this is clearly a happy animal. Which I do with dogs all the time, right? Right. <laughs> right. But, you, but if you were doing a study for an antidepressant, mm-hmm. you need to make sure that you have found patterns in behavior and motions that are consistent with how it will help humans. Um, So for example, there's a a way that we sometimes test antidepressants where we give it to mice and then we have the mice swim. And if the mice are very actively trying to stay afloat, the antidepressant is more effective. And a, a mouse that is exhibiting depression symptoms will kind of flop onto its back and kind of weakly flail its little paws around. And, you know, when I was first told that we did that, I was kind of like, well, okay, so we're saying a mouse that doesn't feel like swimming is depressed? And and then it had to be kind of like, no, 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 we, we have tested all these drugs and we know now mm. the ones that don't work in humans, the mice do this behavior. Gotcha. Right. So we're not saying the mice are depressed. We're just saying this drug will not work on human depression. Right. But of course, I also know from having studied how some of these were developed, Mm -hmm. I don't know that Mr. Stratton's contemporaries were going to those kinds of of levels of of caution. In fact, I know they weren't. Uh, So he was very understandably concerned about probably some of the studies he had heard about Mm -hmm. where they were kind of anthropomorphizing the animals or or going, oh, this clearly indicates something that it clearly doesn't. That's but but that it that particular anxiety about comparing animals to humans, fascination with sex and criminal behavior are all things that come up again and again in the criticism, the contemporary criticisms of psychology that I found. And I'm not very familiar with Sayers theological writing. So I don't know if those themes come up in it. I mean, I think she 
She was someone who certainly was always very interested in in the material realities that people live in, right? She she wasn't a theologian who was like, oh, let's just all play our harps and think spiritual thoughts and, you know, not not think about bodily realities. And I'm 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 not a scholar of Sayers' theological writings either, but I I imagine where she where her personal beliefs would have come down where where it comes to freak. I I don't think the problem is that he's kind of on the cutting edge of medicine or engaging in science. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't think Sayers had a, an anti-science bent at all. I think probably where she would have backed off from, you know, the contemporary debates was probably, I think, similarly to where Mr. Stratton was, was concerned, right? Of will this excuse people from thinking about moral conscience, Right, because I, I think in in that triad that you were describing, the mind, the brain, the soul, Sayers and other theologians would, would heavily argue that morality comes from the soul or that a kind of moral conscience or ability to empathize with fellow creatures or so forth comes from the soul. So so I think any science that would have edged up to even hint at, you know, there is no soul, there's just a mind, yeah. there's just a body. Um, or there's just a brain and a body would have would have been pretty concerning to her. But I, I think it's it's one of the the things that makes these two villains, and I think Freak in particular, so fascinating, right? That he's not a he's not a caricature. He's he's very accomplished, he's very intelligent. And I wonder if Sayers was making any kind of comment there, you know, especially post her own Oxford days of like all the intelligence in the world, if it's not coupled with a kind of moral responsibility is not only not worthwhile, but like potentially dangerous to people, which seems like a going to awkwardly segue it to eugenics. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, as, as, as we have, have talked about in emailing and as mm-hmm. y'all have talked about in past episodes, this idea of criminal lunacy particularly is, is one that pops up on Dr. Freak's CV here. And and he talks about it in his uh, suicide note too, about the flaws that he thinks he consistently sees in criminals, which he seems to think that he is completely exempt from including right? it's like he's not a criminal <laughs> he's like an overweening vanity and he's like <laughs> yeah i bet yeah you do oh <laughs> and so he and a lot of other people who were interested in all f- medical fields at this time were very interested in this in early criminology and if they could find any physical or environmental patterns to who was criminal and and how they got that way, and it's you know it's still something that come that comes up in the rest of the twentieth and the twenty first centuries, but particularly during this time, as we know, eugenics was something that was very much on people's minds. It was kind of the height of of eugenics in Europe and the United States, and. This very idea of excising parts of people's personalities that he talks about and that Dr. Penberthy talks about in, well, we can, I think there's a, 
he's talking to a, a man of religion and they're talking about, mm-hmm. well, if you can give a, a, someone an injection and remove sin. Uh, and those, those of course, are, are related to eugenics because it's, it's making a decision to medicalize how people act and how people think. And I think it's kind of hard for me to say how much Sayers was conscious of condemning it as eugenics. Mm-hmm. There's a spoilery bit we talked about. I don't know if now is a good moment for it or if you want to wait. Uh, um, let's talk about it now. Um, I'll drop a note in our show notes about if our listeners really, really do not want to know anything about future books, um, <laughs> like where to pause and unpause. Yeah. Okay. So it's the bitten gaudy night. Mm-hmm where she talks about eugenics. There's actually, there's a couple of bits. There's a, a character, and one of you reminded me of her name, and I've already forgotten it. Oh, it's Miss Schuster Slatt. Uh, yes. she's, the, she's the really kind of vulgar American woman. Um, and my personal thought is, like, of course, her initials are SS. Um, right. Sort of linking I'm, her to, yeah. And I had not made that connection until we were emailing but so Miss, Miss SS is an American eugenicist who was, was visiting Oxford and was talking about, I, I don't own a copy of Gaudy Night, so I had trouble figuring out what the exact quote was. I, I know my library had it, so I never had to buy it. Oh, um, we should, we'll send you one as a thank you for coming on. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone so, should own a copy of Gaudy Night. <laughs> It is a very good one. So, but she says something about that Peter is like her ideal man in, because mm-hmm. she thinks that the English aristocracy produce in her mind superior children. Um, and it's, it's, you know, very, very basic eugenics, icky stuff. And it's, she's kind of this darkly comic nuisance character and it's clear that Sayers doesn't like her and doesn't want us to like her but there's also a part where Harriet is talking to I think Miss Divine Mm -hmm. and I think Miss Divine says something about they're they're talking about Miss SS and Miss Divine says something like oh yeah they're trying something like that in Germany and there's something just so flippant about it and it's from a character we do generally like or I do generally like and it's it's hard for me to know because of that how much Sayers was kind of consciously being like oh yeah this is something that sucks that I'm taking a stand against Mm -hmm. and how much it was just something that was in her kind of social sphere that she thought was annoying right right well and there's that very telling exchange between Harriet and Paget the gatekeeper the Mr. Paget who he like he keeps the gatehouse into Shrewsbury College okay for most of the book i mean he's a very genial super cordial like you know a little bit old fashioned but he he thinks of the dons as like you know women that he's protecting and mm. he's always very kind and and for for the most part you're just like oh what a kind old man and then at one point he lets drop it's like a throwaway line and i i can't remember if he says it to peter or harriet it might be to peter because he's paget is sort of saying you know like in his day young women stayed at home and were good wives and mothers and didn't go to Oxford. And then he just out of nowhere says what this country needs is a Hitler. 
Oh my god, I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very like every time I'm like, ah, Paget, like we, you know, we were rooting for you, <laughs> like we, you. Oh, we were all rooting for you. Oh no, exactly. Oh, yeah, it's, it's yeah. awful, and I I did not remember it, but yeah, yeah, it's. It's one of those things that you're, you've covered on the show before where some of Sayer's kind of class consciousness, it's hard to know which characters are her mouthpieces and and which characters are are simply reflecting something that she was aware of in the world. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, what, what books like Gaudy Night and what these other works of popular culture, these other detective fiction works in the time are showing is that these were very common conversations, at least that people were having, right? Whether whether we can determine where Sayer is the author or where Sayer is the person came down on on any of it it is, I think, maybe a less interesting question than just like what is getting reflected in the literature. And I and I think certainly as you know, by the time Gaudi Knight is published, I mean, everyone knows we're like barreling towards World War II. And so I think people have written about the fact that this series was sort of begun, continued, and then completed in the interwar period. And Sayers herself said that when World War II started, she she just kind of couldn't bring herself to to keep writing sort of light detective stories. Which is fair. <laughs> yeah, which is very fair. <laughs> like being but also, also interesting because I, I think you know, I I just wouldn't call her stories that light, especially when you put them up against the Christies and the Nio Marshes and things. And it's, I think particularly the the interest in shell shock and the traumas of the war. And I, I was wondering if we could, you know, maybe get back to or or tie everything together via you know that intersection of like war trauma and neurochemistry and where the world is going at this period. I don't, I mean, how did people's understanding of shell shock change over this time? Yeah. And particularly, like I said, I read the whimsy books very out of order. Mm -hmm. And I think it's only been since I've been listening to the podcast that I've kind of realized how some of these books flow into each other. Yeah. And that has really struck me in terms of what you're saying with this series is almost haunted by that First World War. And every mystery that you've covered so far, you've been talking about the the veterans and the people who were left behind, the 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 extraneous women (laughs) and all these things. And it's interesting also because the big reason that in the 1920s psychology and psychoanalysis became so much part of the popular discussion compared to the preceding decades was because of shell shock. And when I was researching the history of shell shock, one thing that really surprised me is that, you know, obviously I think we're, we're it's, there's a temptation now to use shell shock as an old term for PTSD. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm just going to clarify that PTSD cases fell under shell shock, but shell shock encompassed other traumas as well in terms of how they were using it at the time. And when when we kind of look at how PTSD and how trauma has been treated over time, there's a real temptation even within the the scholarly literature to say that almost that PTSD didn't exist before World War 1. 
Which, uh, which is not true. Clearly it's not true. It's, it's yeah. not true. As long as bad things have happened to people, mm-hmm. people have been getting PTSD. And the kind of the, the psychological research on it prior to the First World War was mostly apparently in the context of industrial accidents. Hmm. The, the symptoms were called railway brain for a while because people, people who had had, who had been in railway crashes sometimes had PTSD and, and other kind of traumatic symptoms. But when, for World War One happened, of course, many, many other people have talked about how this war was different from other wars that came before in terms of the technology. But for whatever reason, at this early on in the war, they had a quantity of cases of PTSD that they didn't know what to do with. And they call, were calling it shell shock at this time. And that name came from the idea that these were people who had had a shell explode near them in a battlefield and startled them so much that they couldn't cope afterwards. And there's the very first few people who got it, at least in the British army, were sent home. And they mostly didn't do very well from being sent home, partly because people at home didn't know what to do for them and because they had had this sudden change in environment and they were separated from their comrades and so they had a sudden cut off of social support. And so they started keeping them in military hospitals as much as possible pretty quickly. And that was good for the patients in terms of having this kind of continuity of surroundings, but it was also in the military's best interests because shell shock was very inconvenient. Right. We can't have a glorious war if people are coming back very, very traumatized, right? Mm-hmm. And because they had sent those first few people home, people at home were aware from very early on that people were getting very severely damaged on an emotional and psychological level. And, you know, it made people less likely to want to sign up. (laughs) It made the war less popular among families and media outlets at the time. And so it's kind of hard to tell how much of the changes in treatment were really for the benefit of those suffering as opposed to the military being a functioning unit. Right. Probably a little from column A and a little from column B. Yeah, which is understandable, but not doesn't make me enormously sympathetic to some of these people making decisions. And in line with that, because they realized that shell shock was so inconvenient to their image, they started giving the diagnosis to fewer and fewer people as the war went on, whether or not they actually met the symptoms that they had laid out, they kept tightening it and tightening it. Yikes. Okay. I never knew that. Which meant that by the time of the the Whimsy books and everybody was home, there were, you know, there were soldiers with shell shock that had been given that diagnosis. There were soldiers who were given the diagnosis after the war. And there were soldiers who kind of self-diagnosed with with shell shock. And so the number of people who who were being affected by these, these war traumas ended up being much larger than originally believed by the public once everybody was home and they could kind of see how badly it affected people. Everybody knew people who had shell shock or something close to it, which meant that Everybody was interested in these kind of charitable efforts, these 
scientific efforts to to help them. And that makes sense with Dr. Penberthy having this kind of charity fundraising party that was about, you know, let me tell you about this wonderful glands clinic I'm going to open and, and they're going to cure all of these people that you're worried about. And, and so give me money to do this thing. It was, you know, it was on everybody's minds. And so of, of course she gave Peter these symptoms that she saw in the people around her. And and for what it's worth, I, I'm not qualified to diagnose a person real or fictional with PTSD, but I believe that he meets the checklist. He meets all the things that that are required to have PTSD and rather than some other traumatic set of symptoms. And like most people in real life, it kind of goes back and forth between severity. It's possible that at times he dips out of technically qualifying for PTSD and then he swings back. But, you know, the the flashbacks, avoidance, being on edge, um, arousal and reactivity are the technical terms, which, I mean, Peter's brain is never quiet. And it's implied that it wasn't ever really quiet before the war either, but he's kind of always on. And and so some of those personality features, whether they came for the trauma or not, are consistent with it. You know, some depression, uh, guiltiness, transient interests in, in transient pleasures makes sense. And so there's, of course, this ongoing theme of how he deals with that, that you've been discussing in the various episodes. And I'm not going to rehash how he and Bunter deal with it. But it's interesting that there is this theme of some characters having very different attitudes to his trauma than others. I think we talked in an emailing about how Helen is a sister-in-law's name, right? Yes. 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 So Helen has this attitude that was somewhat common, that he was borderline malingering. He was, you know, not tough enough to get over it. This very old guard attitude that's consistent with the idea of war being glorious and manly. And also with this idea that men of his class were expected to endure a certain amount of deprivation and physical stress, I'll say, in order to become a man. (laughs) It was was very common for for boys of his class to be sent to to schools where they endured these awful abuses. Oh, yeah. Really awful physical punishments. Just to learn how to have a stiff upper lip, right? Mm-hmm. And and it kind of ties into this this stereotype we'll see in in fiction of you know the British gentleman who's very sexually repressed and he's he doesn't talk about his emotions and we just get things done and uh, and of course Peter is none of those things. Right. Well, and parts of his family are like, oh, yes, that's because there's, you know, the French strain from our mother's side. And Peter's just so French. He's all, he's so continental. He's off having affairs with opera singers. (laughs) And and he's talking about his emotions in public. Mm -hmm. How dare he? (laughs) We don't know what to do with him. Yeah. And it's it's very charming to me that Sayers, in her decision to be like, oh, everybody likes the aristocracy, went very much with somebody who was not in keeping with these conventional va- values of personality. There's this is the other spoiler we talked about the the kind of very final 
scene of the novels, it has to do with Harriet learning how he likes to be interacted with when he's having an episode. And this, this kind of, I think it says something about that she has to have this understanding that if she goes to him when she hears him crying, he will shut off forever. He's not going to open up to her in the future. And so she has to kind of endure it until he is ready to come to her. Mm -hmm. Which is wonderful, both in terms of this theme that y'all have been talking about with what makes a good relationship, but also with this theme of Sayers indicating that the real best treatment, if you can even call it that, for somebody who is traumatized is compassion, is is meeting them where they are. And that is, I, I don't want to say it was rare for the time, but certainly it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the only attitude that was present as, as can be seen by Helen and some of the old guard soldiers. Or that guy you were um, talking about in the Bologna Club who's like, he, had, he went to war and he had a good time. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also very worth remembering that because of this interest in PTSD and shell shock, that was driving a lot of this research that she then incorporated having to do with the physical elements of the body and the mind. And it was, there was a 1920s experiment by James Watson and Rosalie Rayner called the Little Albert Experiments. And that had to do with, it's the sort of thing we would never, ever do today because they were traumatizing a child on purpose. Ooh, that's bad. And I mean, I'm sure the kid ended up being more or less okay. But what they did was they they would give this this small boy, I think it was a stuffed rabbit toy. And then out of his line of sight, one of them would bang two pieces of metal together. I think it was a lead pipe and a hammer or something like that. And so he grew to associate this toy with this loud noise that was upsetting to him. And over time, not only did he start crying when he saw the toy, he would start crying when he saw other white fuzzy things, like a white cat, or I think a washcloth. So so some other similar objects. You know, that's that's not fun to think about in terms of the child probably took a while to be comfortable around those things. But what was helpful about that experiment in terms of shell shock specifically was that it taught people that you can have horrible reactions to innocuous objects mm-hmm. because you have learned to associate them because it was present when this upsetting thing happened. And so I think that when it kind of you know reached professionals and it was probably very helpful in figuring out how to deal with some of the cases where people were having triggers that they didn't even know why they had or that they had them. And yeah, they kind of continued on this these multiple kinds of approaches to to treating the shell shock soldiers of, you know, some people were, were advocating this very stiff kind of get over it almost kind of treatment and others were being very gentle. And of course, your access to treatment at all was very dependent on what sort of money you had, how much you needed to be working, all these things. And the the social perception of shell shop was was one of of great horror and great sympathy and so by the time the second world war rolled around they kind of stopped using the term within the military and they start kind of shifting to more euphemistic terms particularly they started talking about soldiers as having exhaustion in the the US and the UK they would talk about them having exhaustion not shell shock they weren't have they weren't traumatized they were exhausted Hmm. Because that sounds like 
you know, oh, just take a rest cure and we can mm-hmm. ship you right back to the front, right? Yeah, yep. And and so there's this this ongoing kind of effort to downplay it and how many cases were being seen. And it kind of continued that way until the Vietnam War. And I think it's not really clear to me what particularly changed aside from you know, there was this enormous student activism, particularly against the Vietnam War and new research and changes in media. So because of trying to create this environment of understanding the trauma that was being seen in Vietnam War, um, the term PTSD was finally coined in the 80s. Mm. Wow, I, I didn't realize it was that late, but... Yeah. yeah, It makes sense that as narratives about war changed through the century, that some of this would be more, you know, emphasized and then de-emphasized and then emphasized again. Yeah. And, and once the term PTSD was changed, and I might be, I might be overstating this because military history is definitely not my wheelhouse, but it seems to me that those two wars of the World War One and the Vietnam War represent the turning points in the Western culture of changing this narrative from soldiers being framed in glory to it is this sacrifice mm-hmm. to serve. Because they had to come up with some way to reframe what people do in joining the military for honestly for PR, but also to to try to give this impression of, okay, we can't outrun the fact that war trauma is a very real problem that we are still struggling to figure out how to treat, but we need to give the impression that we are trying to treat it. We are making a responsibility to treat it. And I don't have the year up, but I know that one of the kind of cultural keystones closer to Sayer's time was the, the Wilfred Owen poem of Dulcea mm-hmm. Decorum Est. Yes. And, and that of course, something that I, I thought about a lot and when I was reading The Unpleasantness of the Bologna Club and how she had incorporated this this new feeling of, of war as a horrible thing. And I know that when you were doing those episodes on that book, there's a part where Peter says something about that war is horrible for men with imaginative minds. And that fascinated me because it's not a 100% thing. It's something that's been proposed, but we don't really have it definitively pinned down. But when I was was in doing my studies, a couple different professors brought up the fact that we think one of the risk factors for developing PTSD is having a really vivid imagination. And in particular, I know one of my professors talked about that she thinks if you have more trouble kind of deciding, I don't want to think about this right now, I'm going to push this thought away, and I'm going to think about this later or not at all. If you have more trouble doing that, you're more like probably more likely to develop PTSD, which, which makes sense if you're having intrusive thoughts or yeah. Mm-hmm. Intrusive thoughts, persistent thoughts, that makes sense. But I don't want anybody to take that as a 100% thing. We're still trying to figure it out. I have gone completely off my outline now. So <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Was there anything else that you wanted to cover? Or I, I feel like ending it on a note of, you know, having compassion for people with trauma, whether that's you know, from the military or elsewise is, is a good note. 
we can all have more compassion on each other. <laughs> yeah. And and I think it's it's also worth thinking about that Harriet has some trauma too yes. from, from her experiences, both with Philip Boyce as an awful partner mm-hmm. and being accused of his murder. So as as you go through the, the strong poison and onwards and she shows up, although I don't think she qualifies for PTSD, I think we will see some some parallels between how she and Peter think about things and approach things because they are both coming at it from this the similar changes to their lives about having to be cautious in ways that they didn't before and having to um, be gentle with themselves in ways that they didn't have to before. Absolutely. Not to give too much away uh, to <laughs> listeners, but that it's definitely going to come up in the future. I think if I had been allowed to just write a dissertation completely on Dorothy Sayers, one of the chapters would have been about my my deep investment in reading the Harriet books via trauma theory with the literature, because I, I think that's very much a, an approach that, that works with the text, shall we say. So, yes. Stay Agreed. tuned, listeners. This is all this is all coming soon. <laughs> and I personally can't wait. <laughs> Yay. Thank you. Well, Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining me. I have learned so much. I can't wait to share this with our listeners. And dear listeners, if you have any other questions about the history of neuroscience during this period, um, how it's interacting with detective fiction, other places you see it come up in the text, questions about shell shock, Gabrielle has very kindly agreed to field those. So if you want to contact your co-hosts, Karis and Sharon, either via our Twitter or our website, our email. Those channels will be noted in the show notes and we will pass those questions along and relay answers back. So thank you so much and uh, more to come. A quick reminder to our listeners that this podcast will be going on a very brief hiatus You can expect our next episode, which will be on five red herrings, to drop in four weeks instead of two. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at WhimsyPod. That's Whimsy, W-I-M-S-E-Y. And you can find transcripts and show notes of our episodes on our website at asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd love for you to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. And we also hope that you'll tell all your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. Join us next time for more Talking Piffle. Mm-hmm.